0: Well, if you were here last week, you know that Michael passed over Luke sixteen eighteen, and he said that I would be coming back to that verse this morning on divorce, and I was going to be talking about that until I was uh, picked to serve on a jury this week, and I spent a number of days down at the courthouse doing my civic duty. So what we're going to do today is change directions, and I want you to turn in your Bible instead to 1 Corinthians nine twenty four. And we're going to come back to that verse in Luke 16, 18 in two weeks. The reason it will be in two weeks is next Sunday I'll be out at Maranatha Bible Church in Converse where we do a pulpit exchange every year with uh, Maranatha. And on October 14th, Pastor Rander Draper will be here at Wayside at 410 uh, on the other end of the exchange. So if you've never been here to hear Pastor Draper, I know you'll want to mark that Sunday and and be here. It's also our church picnic day, so remember you get to dress down that day and invite your friends to go with you to Morgan's Wonderland. It'll be a wonderful Sunday. But today what I want us to do is look at 1 Corinthians nine twenty four through 27, where Paul uses two different images of athletes in action. One of those is of a boxer who he says buffets his body. That is, he literally disciplines uh, himself in order to live the Christian life. And the other is this picture of running a race. 1 Corinthians 9:24 through 27 tells us this. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but you an imperishable Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Now, listening to those verses, it sounds a little bit like what the world tells us, right? Whatever it takes, win. But as you look closer, this isn't about crushing the competition, Paul's not telling us to play according to the world's rules because he's, he's not telling us to play the world's game. The world tells us to run the rat race, but Paul is talking about God telling us to run the right race. While we're here in the world, Broadway actress Lily Tomlin once said, even if you win the rat race, you're still a rat. In the rat race, you're pursuing property and prosperity and possessions. But in the right race, you're pursuing people and the things of God that last for eternity. It, it shouldn't be the things of the world that we're pursuing, but instead we should be pursuing God's goal. He says the things that include the heavenly prize that will not perish. Now, this word for prize is the Greek word brabeon. It's actually a very rare word. It's only found one other time in the Bible in Philippians 3.14. There, Paul said, I press on, I press on toward the goal. For the prize of the heavenly call of God in Christ Jesus. See, what Paul tells us is what he's pursuing is to know God and to make him known. He wants to know Christ and he wants others to know about God's Son who came to save us. It's been said that the Christian faith is always just one generation away from extinction, one generation away from extinction. Bruce Wilkinson said that uh, God has no grandchildren. You see, each of us come to faith on our own. It's not your parents' faith. This morning we saw two baptisms of two young ladies who were part of godly families here at Wayside. But you heard each of them in their middle school time made a personal decision to become followers of Jesus themselves. Faith has to be personal. It's not our parents' faith. But it is up to us as parents to help our kids know the Lord, to love him, to know his word and his ways, We find that charge in Deuteronomy chapter 6 where God gave parents the privilege and the sacred responsibility of passing on uh, his word and ways to our children. There it says in Deuteronomy 6, You shall teach them diligently to your sons and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. We're called to do this in places of ministry. Uh, We find this in Ephesians chapter 4 and verses 11 through 13. It says, and he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints. This is my job description. It's not to do ministry. It's to equip you who are God's people to do ministry. It says, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. And Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, 2, the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able then to teach others also. You see, it's a picture of a relay race. As parents, you have the baton of faith, and he says, are you handing this to your children and the grandchildren and great-grandchildren in some cases beyond that for you? He, he says to me as a pastor, are you taking the baton of faith and equipping and handing it to others who will then be able to do ministry? Paul says to Timothy, you see this picture of the handoff. He says, what I have taken and given to you, Timothy, you are then to take and give to faithful men and women who will also be able to entrust it to others. It's this, this handoff and this passing on of, of what we know of God's word and his ways. As you think about your life this morning, I want you to, to imagine where you are in that relay race. Who is it that you are either preparing to or have or are currently handing the baton of faith off to? If you've ever seen a relay race, remember, we're told it's not a solo race. This is, this is where we're passing from one generation to another. If you've ever seen a relay race, you know that the, the leadoff runner begins with the baton. And and he or she doesn't sprint around the track four or five times and and cross the finish line and say, I I, I did it. What they do is they run to the the box where the next runner is, and they they hand that baton off to the other runner who then takes it, and they take their lap, their leg around the track, and then they also hand it off to another person. So as you think in terms of, of that race, uh, what, what does it look like for you? Now, maybe you're sitting here saying, well, Roger, I'm not the lead off-runner. I'm, I'm not the, the man or the woman at the top of the organization. I'm not a person in a place of influence like you. I don't get to stand up here in front of people and, and talk to them about God. Can I tell you something? Every one of you here is in a place of influence. Every single person. Your platform uh, is different than the platform of the person sitting next to you. Because every single one of us here is in a place where we intersect lives with other people that nobody else in this room will have the exact same relationships, circumstances, uh, various opportunities that you have. Every single person here is in a place of influence. So stop worrying about when you're going to have a platform. You already have it. The question is, what are you doing with the opportunities that God has already given to you? As you think in terms of, of taking this baton and passing it to another. Now let me step out of the, the image of a relay race to a, a road race for a moment. Uh, back when I was in college, back when the earth was still cooling in the minds of some of you, back in the 80s, uh, at the University of Texas in Austin, I ran a, um, I used to run cross-country and road races. I wasn't part of the official UT team, but I was part of the uh, club that was there. And I loved running these... Races. My favorite one was the Capital 10,000, and the Capital 10,000 is a 6.2-mile race that winds throughout the city. You go up and down past the lake near the Capitol, and all these things, and, and it was a very popular race. There were literally tens of thousands of runners who would run this race every year. Now, they would uh, give you your runner's bib that had different color numbers, that had your category, and they they had seating of of where you were in terms of uh, your speed, and those people were placed near the front. There were world-class marathoners who ran the capital 10,000 every year, and they ran a a 10K like it was a 100-yard dash. Uh, Those individuals would be at the front of the starting line. Now... I was kind of about halfway back, about 5,000 runners uh, seated further back in the race. And so the gun would sound, everybody would take off, and it was usually by the time I crossed the starting line, some of these front world-class runners were already halfway through the, through the race. Now, if that was the case, where I had no chance of winning, now, even if you had put me in the front, I had no chance of winning, uh, but if, you, if, if I had no chance of grabbing the glory of the trophy, why did I run this race every year? Well, I ran it not because uh, I wanted the, the trophy. I ran it because I was looking for a personal best time. You see, the race was always against myself. It wasn't against the other runners around me. Now, the other runners around me could affect how well I ran. If there were faster runners in front of me, any of you who have run these type of races know part of the strategy is you pick out a person ahead of you, and you, your, your goal is to pick them off, and then you pick the next one, and you, you just keep trying to move forward in, in your uh, standing So you could run better if there were good runners ahead of you, and you could also be hindered by the people around you, because in these large groups, you can't get your stride sometimes, you're packed in, Uh, it, it may be a couple miles in before it thins out enough for you to kind of get into your full rhythm. And one year I was in this tight pack where I got tripped from behind, and as I was running and my, my legs got kicked out from under me, I went sprawling down onto the, the city streets of Austin. And as I hit the ground, I skinned up my palms. Uh, both my knees were bloody. And uh, I didn't stay down for long, even though I wanted to, because there were another 5,000 people waiting to trample me from behind. That kind of motivates you to get up and moving. It's a beautiful picture of where we're told in Hebrews that we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. That kind of moves us along, right? And so as I'm up and I'm running or hobbling at this point, you know, my knees are bleeding, the sweat is stinging it, I'm, I'm kind of half limping, half running, and I'm trying to get over to the side. But there were so many people around me, I couldn't even quit the race. I couldn't get to the side. And, and as I'm running, people saw what happened. They're around me and they're trying to cheer me on and encourage me. They're going, you're okay, you can keep going. And, and I thought, you're oxygen deprived. You have no idea <laughs> how bad I am hurting right now. But as I kept going, I thought, you know, maybe I can do this. Maybe I can finish. So I kept running, and after a period of time, I I got back into it, and I was able to finish the race. And I was pretty proud of myself. I crossed the finish line. It was uh, one of my worst times ever. But as I crossed the finish line, uh, this race official comes running up, and he's yelling, you won! You won! And I was like, wow, this has never happened before and it wasn't happening that day either because he ran right past me <laughs> to this this little boy who was a couple runners back behind me and he grabs this boy and he takes him down these roped off areas where the winners go right and so i'm kind of pulled over to the side still kind of nursing my wounds and i watch this little boy go over to the winner stand and i thought well that's not fair you know, I crossed the finish line before this guy. Why did they say he won? Well, because he was wearing a bib that said he was in the 10 to 12-year-old boys uh, group. <laughs> and I was in the 20-somethings, right? So this, this 10 or 12-year-old boy is moved over to the winner's stand because his race was not against me. It was against all the other 10 to 12-year-old boys. And And, you know, as we read this passage where Paul says, there's only one person who wins the prize. You may be sitting here reading them. Why even try? I have no opportunity to win the prize. I can't, I can't do this. But what Paul is telling us here is, men and women, you are in your own category. There are no other people in your category. Your race bib has a different number, a different name. It says you are the only one in your category. You see, we're not racing against the Apostle Paul who was used to write books of the Bible under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. We're not racing against Billy Graham, who probably still has a line of people in heaven thanking him for helping them to get there. You and I are in our own category. Now, if that's the case, what I want you to understand, though, is this. We, we don't win by default. See, Paul tells us here in verse 24, run in such a way that you may win the race. What he's telling us here in verse 25 is it takes discipline, it takes focus. He says, everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Many of you here, if you've, if you've not been a road race uh, or somebody in a competition like that, some type of athletic competition, you still know what it means to have focus and discipline. Some of you are gifted musicians, some, some, an ability I do not possess, and, and you are able to do that because you've devoted years and years of practice and discipline and study to be able to play that. Those of you who study for exams or, or programs know you're, you're devoting extensive amounts of time toward the discipline, learning the profession, and earning the professional degrees that you're receiving. So whether we're earning a degree, practicing for a game, a recital, or some other competition, we know it takes focus and discipline. And and like an athlete who will change his or her diet and who will discipline their body, getting up early, putting in the miles, lifting the weights, doing the things that are necessary, what Paul says is we as Christians need to do similar things, whether it's spending time in the Word of God, spending time in prayer, doing the things that we need to. When he says he buffets his body, he literally, it's a picture of boxing himself, uh, beating his body into submission so that he doesn't uh, disqualify himself, he said. Now, if an athlete will compete at their best to win a championship or ring or a trophy, how much more should we as believers who are involved in something, and I'm not trying to be dramatic here, I'm just being honest, it is a life or death matter. Do you realize that every time you meet a non-believer, it's a life or death matter? Because if they come to know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, they receive the gift of eternal life. And if they do not receive him in their time here on this earth, then there is a day coming where they will be separated for all eternity from God. And so he tells us as believers, this is the entrustment. We have been given the baton of faith. We've been entrusted with the good news of the gospel. And he says, what are you doing? to hand that off, to pass it to another. Now, when you watch a race, sometimes you see those who are on the side of the road. Like I told you, I was trying to quit the race. I was trying to drop out. And in Galatians 5, 7, Paul says, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? And I wonder if that's a question that applies to anyone here this morning. How many of you were running well, but you stumbled and fallen? What is it that has hindered you? What is, who has tripped you from behind? What is it that has drawn you off the course? Is there a boyfriend or a girlfriend who's, who's pressuring you to put aside uh, purity or your walk with God? Is, is there a coworker or a colleague who's, who's saying, look, just compromise your Christian principles. You don't need to live for Christ. You know, make your numbers. You can have that church stuff when you're there outside of work. But while you're here, live like the world. Is it a pursuit of power or possessions, uh, some portfolio or something that's drawing you away from pursuing Christ? As you look at the things the world offers, look at verse 25 again, because Paul says they are nothing more than a perishable wreath. You see, Paul is writing to Corinth where the Isthmian Games were held. It was a forerunner to the Olympics. And what they would receive when they won an event in the Isthmian Games was literally a perishable wreath. It was a garland of greenery that would be placed on their head. And after a few days, it withered and was tossed aside. And as you think about all this stuff in the world, it's a perfect picture of that. Think of what it is you're pursuing. Was it a, you've been working really hard to buy that new car. And as soon as you drive it off the lot, it depreciates massively. Is it, is it some item that you wanted and, and then one day you hold a garage sale and you put all those treasures out in your driveway and, and you watch people, you know, rummaging through them and you go, oh, I hope they give me a quarter for that, you know? Is that what you are pursuing? Is it designer clothing that's either collecting dust in your, your closet or it's been donated to Goodwill or the Salvation Army or some other thing? Maybe you're saying, well, Roger, it's something more lasting. You know, it's like a house. We've all seen the the pictures of the hurricane where million-dollar homes have been blown away and destroyed. The things of the earth are perishable. They're passing. There are only two things that are going to last for all eternity, the Word of God and the eternal souls of people. And as you think about what you're investing in, are they the things of God? Are they like Paul who said, I'm pursuing the prize of knowing Christ and making him known? I mentioned earlier that, that God calls us to pass this baton of faith. And, and as you think in terms of when you're going to walk out of the door of Wayside this morning, and when you go to wherever it is, your home, your school, your workplace, back to the base where you serve, who are the people that you can picture that you've got this baton of faith that you're saying, I'm going to intentionally be handing this off to somebody? Can you picture those people? If you're a parent, God has already given us uh, a group that we should be focused on. We read in Deuteronomy 6 that we should be passing it on to the next generation. I want to give you an example of what happens when we don't follow God and pass on the things his word and his ways to others. In Judges chapter 2, in, in Judges 2 we see an example of what can happen. Verse 10 of Judges 2 says, "All that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. It says the current generation who had the baton of faith, who had the word and the ways of God, when it came to passing it to the next generation, they dropped it. There was no handoff. The next generation did not receive those things. And they fumbled the pass. Do you know what happens in a race when you drop the baton? You're disqualified. You can have a world class team made up of the best runners in the entire world, but if that baton does not get past and, and cross the finish line in the right way, then that team loses. It doesn't matter how fast they are, they're disqualified, and there's a drop. And when it comes to passing the baton of faith, the consequences are even more severe. In Judges 2, 11 through 12, we're told, Then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals, and they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them, and they bowed themselves down to them. Thus they provoked the Lord to anger. Have you ever read through the book of Judges? It's a pretty sad cycle that takes place. For 350 years, we're told there's this cycle that takes place. It says that there is a a baton drop. And the next generation falls into sin. They turn their back on God. They they pursue the pagan gods of, of the world. And then what happens is God sends them into a time of slavery. He raises up a foreign power. The people are conquered. They're taken away into captivity. And, and, and that's a consequence to try to drive God's people back to him. So they go from sin to slavery, and after a period of time, they repent, and they cry out in supplication or prayer. And they ask God, would you be merciful? Would you, re, would you save us? Would you send somebody to, to set us free from this period of slavery? And God raises up a Savior, a judge, or ultimately Jesus Christ, who saved us from the penalty of sin and death. And, and the people turn back to God for, for a period of time, but then they fall back into that same cycle of sin. There's another baton drop, another generation that arises that does not know or love God or honor him. And, and, and then the, the baton lays there on the ground, and they go back into this cycle of sin. As you think about your life today, have you been dropping the baton? Or is there somebody that you're saying, I've got a runner in the box that I see ahead of me that I'm, I'm handing this off to? You see, a, a relay race is not a solo sprint around the track. You don't lap the lap a couple of times and say, I won. What happens is, as you're coming in, there's another runner in a box. And, and that runner is there, and as you're approaching them, there's a 10-meter area called the acceleration zone. And what happens is that, that another runner that's ahead of you, as they see you coming in, they begin to run and they put their hand out. And as you're running up to them, it's not a dead stop where you hand the baton and say, hey, good luck. What happens is you run up to them and you run together for a period of time. And as you put the baton out, they reach back and they take it and then they take off and they go around to the, the next person who's waiting. And in a well-run race, the two are running together for a period of time. They're pacing each other together, and then the baton handoff happens at full speed. And, and this is what should, it should look like in our lives. We should have this mentoring relationship where we see another man or woman, boy or girl, that we're mentoring, and we're running with them for a period of time as you hand off the baton. The Bible is full of several examples. There's a prophet by the name of Elijah. Elijah. And you remember in 1st Kings 19:19 19, 19, he went to do a baton handoff he literally laid his mantle on his successor who was named Elisha. And as you look at 1st Kings 19:19 19, 19, when when he designates him you're the guy in the box we're running together. It was a period of about 6 years before the actual baton handoff happened in 2nd Kings 2. And in that t- period of time, over those chapters, and over that period of time, what happened was they were running together. Elijah was teaching Elisha how to be a prophet of God, how to lead the people, how to minister, how to do the things of God. So when, when his time and he was taken away, Elisha was at full speed running. Another example of a successful handoff is, is King David to his son Solomon. As you look at uh, Proverbs chapter 4, as you read the beginning verses of Proverbs 4, it tells you that Solomon, King Solomon says, the things that I heard from King David and Bathsheba, my mom and dad, he says, they were handed to me. And then he says, and to my sons, I'm now handing off to you. There was this, this passing of the baton from mom and dad to son to grandsons. And, and another example is found in First Chronicles 28, where it says in verses 2 through 3, Then King David rose to his feet, and he said, Listen to me, my brethren, and my people. I had intended to build a permanent home for the ark of the covenant of the Lord and for the footstool of our God. So I had made preparations to build it. But God said to me, You shall not build a house for my name, because you are a man of war and of shed blood. So what happens is David said, my desire was to build the temple for God. My, my, my vision was to build the house of God. And he said, as I was running, God said to me, uh, you don't get to fulfill that. Your son will be the one to do it. So what did David do? Did David say, fine. If it's not for me, if I don't get the credit, if I don't get the ability to do it, then I'm done. Is that what he did? No. What David did was he said, how can I set my successor? up for success? How do I uh, prepare Solomon to, to, to hit the ground running and be able to be successful in implementing this vision? It said, well, he raised up, uh, he, he gave David the plans for the temple. David got all the supplies together. He, he had all the, the wealth that was piled up, the gold, the silver, the wood, the things that were needed, the stonemasons. He prepared everything so that when the handoff came, his son was able to take it at full speed and fulfill the vision of building the temple. And if you're here today, if you're a man or a woman in a place of leadership and you think your time is coming to an end and your stewardship and you're thinking, well, I'm just going to coast in. I'm just going to sit back. Uh, that is not what God wants us to do. He wants us to raise up others to prepare other leaders. And let me say this as I'm talking about this. We're talking specifically about God's word. And, and you may be sitting here saying, well, Roger, this really doesn't apply to me because I'm, I'm not a professional pastor. I'm not in vocational ministry. Can I tell you something? You're wrong. Because you all are in full-time ministry. Every one of you, as I already told you, has a place of influence. Every one of you has a place of stewardship. And you may never stand behind a pulpit like this to preach, but if you go to work and you're a cashier, your pulpit is at sales counter. If you're a person who's a a manager or in some other administrative capacity in in a business, your desk is your pulpit. If you're a person who's posted out somewhere in the military, that is your pulpit. There is no separation of sacred and secular in God's economy. The Bible is very clear. It says whatever you do in terms of your work, do it for the Lord. Each of us, wherever God has us, has the opportunity to take the baton of faith and to pass it to others. And so wherever you find yourself, that is your place of ministry. And what God says is, I want you to be taking that, and I want you to be intentional about seeing the person in the box when you go to work on Monday or tonight when you go to work or whatever day it is, or if you're going back to school, the person sitting in the desk next to you, he says, do you see them as that person in the box that you're coming up And preparing to do the handoff. Now in terms of of ministry here at Wayside, uh, I've been a senior pastor for 25 years, about half of that time here at Wayside Chapel. And I feel like I've got a lot of road ahead of me. I'm 53 years old. Michael told you recently he's 36 years old. And you, you can look at somebody like me, the first service thinks I'm young. They're like, hey, we got kids your age. And some of you sitting here are going, dude, you're old, you're 53. Wow, that's pretty ancient. <laughs> so I'm in a good sweet spot. Some of you think I'm old, some of you think I'm young. But you can look at me and I can say, hey, I've got, I've got a lot of years ahead of me to run. I feel like I'm at full stride. But imagine if you're a relay runner and you're running up and that, that, that person's in the box and you're coming up to them. And as you get there, you go, you know, I feel pretty good. I think I can go another lap. And the person's like, come on, come on, come on, give me the baton. Remember you got that 10-meter, 10, 10 you know, handoff zone, and you run past them and go, I'll, I'll see you next lap. What's going to happen to those people who you say, just wait in the box, your, your turn is coming, I'm going to be handing off. Do you think they're going to wait around long if you continually overrun them? You see, and what happens sometimes, especially in contexts where you as a leader do not prepare your successor, is there comes a point where you may say, I'm doing fine. I got some more, you know, laps in me. But then you hit a point where you run out of gas. And then you just kind of go, okay, I'm done. Somebody take it. Somebody, come on, come on, come on, take the baton. There. I don't want it anymore. Somebody pick it up. And it affects the organization. There's a loss of momentum. There's no, there's no succession plan. And as you think in terms of your place of stewardship, are you preparing somebody for your baton? You know, here at Wayside, I mentioned Michael. And you've heard Michael Loudermilk up here. He's a very gifted pastor. And, you know, what's funny is whenever Michael preaches, I hear from some of you on a regular basis, you say, you better be careful, Roger. He's going to take your job, you know. Well, you know, if he takes my job, it just means my job here is done. It means that God has another place of ministry for me. And I mention that because I know some of you who are sitting here may be thinking, well, if I prepare and I raise up another qualified leader, well, then what's going to happen to me? This baton is not any of ours. Wayside Chapel does not belong to Roger Poupart. This is not my baton, not my church. This is Jesus Christ Church. And your business, you may say, I'm the founder builder of my company. It's not yours either. We've been talking in past messages about how everything we own is a stewardship, an entrustment from God. That is not yours either. And so you have to ask yourself, what are you doing with what God has entrusted to you? I've got a friend who's a a pastor of another large church like ours. And he tells me that whenever he's out of the pulpit, he finds the boringest speaker he can to fill in for him. And he tells me he does that because when he comes back, people go, oh, we're so glad you're back, you know? I guess I should be glad he's never asked me to preach for him at his church. You know, what I've told him is, I said, you know, you need to grow up. I I said it in love, but I, I just told him, I said... I said, you need to grow up. That is not your flock, your church. That is God's people. And you need to be feeding them the best you can. And you need to ask yourself if you're a leader, are you doing that? Are you raising up young leaders? You know, I told you that if you run past them, those people will not stay in the box. Uh, I call them young eagles. And if you don't let young eagles fly, they're going to fly the coop. If you don't give people in your company, in your place of ministry, uh, the opportunity to grow and develop, they're going to go somewhere else. You're going to lose gifted young leaders, and then there's going to be a baton drop one day because there's not going to be anybody around uh, to, to hand off to. And so you have to ask yourself, what are you doing to grow and develop leaders? We do it here at Wayside. We are not perfect, but we, we really try across the board to do it. It's not just with the pastors you see on the platform. We do it with our administrative staff. We have, we have a bunch of very gifted individuals here. And we're always giving opportunities to grow and, and rise up. Right now, Heather and, and Lauren, two of the ladies who are administrative assistants, have taken on uh, director's positions in communication here within our organization, Liz Model before that. You've got individuals like Will Davis who are out uh, now as the campus pastor out at our Stone Oak location. You've got others like Cameron Contrastano. Uh, that are there, that are growing and developing. Beyond, beyond Michael, we have Jason Upmore, who's on a singles retreat this weekend with a bunch of our college and singles people. We have gifted individuals who, who are here, and it is my job, remember, for the equipping of the saints. And when you get with these young individuals, these up-and-coming leaders, it's not easy. People will tell me, oh, wouldn't it great you had a week off? And I'm going, you know, I spent weeks working with the individual on their sermon before they ever preached their first sermon. But over time, what happens is over a period of time, they're able to preach on their own and they're very gifted. And you have people like Michael Loudermilk that, you know, many of you are like, Roger, take a few more weeks off, you know, go, <laughs> go preach in Maranatha and everywhere else so we can hear more of Michael. And that's okay because this is what God calls us to do. So if you're a leader, if you're a man or a woman who says, hey, I'm not going to do that because I'm afraid to raise somebody up because they may take my position, I want you to think about if you've ever been here on, um, on a Christmas Eve service, you know, we will often do a communion and candlelight type of setup, and we'll sing Silent Night, and at the end, you've got, you know, one candle that we then pass the light, and we, we start lighting everybody else's candles in the room, and if you've ever been in this sanctuary, you know what suddenly happens is it goes from a dark room to, to about a thousand lights, and the whole place lights up. You know, when you take your light and you pass it to another, it doesn't put yours out. It doesn't diminish who you are as a leader. What it does is it multiplies the light that you have. And so you have to ask yourself if you're doing that. As we look at what's happening here, uh, God gives us this, this picture of passing the baton from Paul to Timothy and Timothy to another. And he says we should be just multiplying our ministry with one another. As you look through the scriptures, you see other examples of this. Barnabas is is one of my favorites. He's a man who is a great example of that. You know, Barnabas was called in the New Testament the son of encouragement. He was a guy that was always looking for people he could build into and raise up and encourage. And we don't have time to look at everything that he does, but let me highlight his relationship just with this guy named Paul, who you'll remember originally was called Saul. Saul was his Hebrew name. Saul was his Pharisee this persecutor of the church, and he eventually became renamed as Paul, which was his Greek name uh, after he became a believer. And in Acts chapter 11, we have Barnabas, who was sent by God to do some work in Antioch among the Gentiles. Remember, the gospel was spreading among the Jews, and ultimately it went to the Gentiles. And, and the Jewish people were saying, what is this, the, the the word is is taking root among the Gentiles? So they said, who's a trusted guy we can send there to uh, tell us what's going on. Barnabas is commissioned. He goes to Antioch. He says, God's at work here. The Holy Spirit is bringing people to, to know the Lord. And so he sends back a report, and they say, great, you stay there and pastor that church. And so Barnabas is there. The church is growing. He could, he could just sit back and bask in the glow, saying, look at what God's using me to do. But instead, what we find in Acts 11, 25 through 26 is this. And and Barnabas left for Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And he was there for an entire year that the two of them met with the church and taught considerable numbers. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. See, in, in, in leadership, whether it's ministry or anything else, there's something called the law of the lid. Do you know what the law of the lid is? The law of the lid says that an organization can only grow to the capacity of the leader. And if a leader uh, is unwilling to move out of the way or raise others up who can let the organization outpace their individual ability, then you've become the lid and you've stunted the growth of your organization. What insecure leaders will do is surround themselves with people who are of lesser ability so it makes themselves look better. And Barnabas could have said, hey, God is doing great things through me. I don't want anybody to come in and steal some of the spotlight. But instead, what, what Barnabas did was he said, listen, these are Gentile believers. And being Gentile means you weren't raised knowing the Old Testament. You, you didn't know the Torah. You didn't know the Pentateuch, the five books of the law. You didn't know uh, the things of the Old Testament. And Barnabas, as a Jewish believer, could teach those things. But then he said, who is better equipped and he said, there's this brilliant Torah scholar by the name of Saul, who had been a Pharisee, a teacher of the law. And he said, I'm going to go get this guy, and I'm going to bring him back so God's people have the best. And as they did that, the church was exploding. And there was great growth, and the two were ministering together uh, for, for about a period of a year. And as you read through the scriptures, you're reading through Acts, you see this missionary team, and it will tell us that there was Barnabas and Paul, Parnabas and Paul. And the order of people's names is important, isn't it? Have you ever walked up to a, a, a door in a corporate office and you see all the partners' names on the doors? Or you get a, a piece of letterhead and it has people's names, and you know whoever is listed first is the senior or managing partner. They're, they're the really important people, right? And then it kind of goes down from there. And so when you look at something like this, uh, the order of names is important. In Acts 11.30, it says Barnabas and Saul. Barnabas is the senior pastor. Barnabas is the head guy. Then in Acts 12.25, it says Barnabas and Saul. Acts 13.12, set apart for me Barnabas and Paul for the work that I have called them. But when you get to Acts chapter 14, there starts to be a time where Paul's name starts showing up sometimes in front of Barnabas's name. So if that were to happen, what do you think should happen with Barnabas? Should he say, hey, Paul, I think it's time for you to uh, go away. I think it's time for you to go find your your own place of ministry. It would be like me saying to Michael Loudermilk, I think there's a a need in the deep, dark jungles of Tambouli for you right now, right? (laughs) Michael's sitting over there smiling at me. I hope you got your ticket, right? (laughs) No, I'm not doing that. When we get to Acts fifteen thirty six, you see Paul and Barnabas. And they're getting ready to go out on a missionary journey. And you know what happens? Verse 37 says, Barnabas wants to take along a guy by the name of John Mark. But Paul says, no way. Do you remember why Paul doesn't want him to go? Because on a previous missionary trip, this young guy by the name of John Mark bailed on them. Things got tough. He abandoned the group and he left them in a lurch. And so Paul says, this guy failed and we can't trust him and we can't give him any more opportunities. And and he pushed him aside and said, he's not allowed to go on another missionary journey. But Barnabas, the son of encouragement, says, no, we need to give him another chance. Verse 30 says, verse 39 says, There arose such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another, and Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas. Don't you sometimes wish there was more in the Bible? You know, I read things like this. When it says there arose a sharp disagreement, it's it's like they, they got ready to have a throwdown. I mean, there was a there was a knockdown drag-out fight here. Wouldn't you like to know how the conversation went? You know, maybe there's Paul sitting there going, forget it. This guy can't be trusted. He's done. It was a career killer. It's over. And Barnabas, again, this is just my inspired heresy, so take it for what it is. I think Barnabas goes, Paul, yeah, he really did blow it. I understand how nobody can trust this kid. You know, it reminds me of another guy I once knew by the name of Saul uh... who was this pharisee who was persecuting and killing christians and then he had this experience on the road to damascus And he encountered the resurrected Lord, and he became a believer. And then he gets to the city, and all the Christians there were really scared of this guy because they thought, well, is he really saved or not? Is he going to hurt us? What's going on? And nobody would touch him with a 10-foot pole. And then I remember a guy by the name of Barnabas coming along who vouched for him. And he said, you know, I think we can trust this guy. In fact, I'll personally vouch for him. And the long and short of it is Saul became Paul, and now he's this great missionary and pastor and can you think of a time where anybody did that for you? You know, if you're in a place of leadership or responsibility, can you think of a time that somebody gave you the benefit of the doubt? Somebody who said, yeah, you failed. Let's let you fail forward. Okay, you made a mess. What about God? The Bible tells us in Romans 5 eight God demonstrated his own love for us in this while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. While we were at our worst, while we were far from God, while we were in rebellion, God didn't say, I want nothing to do with you. He opened his arms wide. He died on a cross, and he welcomed us in. As recipients of God's grace, why can we not give that same grace to others? And if you're in a workplace environment and you're saying, well, you know, I had to wait, and they need to as well. Or can I remind you that somebody somewhere, if you're in leadership, gave you an opportunity? There was a board, there was a supervisor, there was somebody who let you learn. Somebody who gave you opportunities to grow and develop into the leader you are today. Again, I wish we had more time to delve deeper into this, but let's fast forward to the end of the story. Because things come full circle with Paul, because as you look at Colossians 4.10, it tells us that Paul is in prison yet again. And when Paul finds himself nearing death and he's in yet another prison, he says this in 2 Timothy 4.11, Pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. Did you see that? Paul is at the point of dying And as he gets to the end of his run, he says, aside from bring me a coat because I'm cold and the parchment so I can read the word of God, the other request he made is bring me a guy by the name of John Mark. What if Barnabas had written him off? What if Barnabas had said, yeah, this guy failed, he's done. But because he came alongside and he developed and he encouraged him. And he grew him up as he did a Second 2 Timothy 2, two. And he said, the things which you've heard from me, entrust these to another, who will then be able to entrust them to another. That's what happened. And as you look in your Bible, if you've ever read the Gospel of Mark, do you know who wrote that book? John Mark. God took this failure of a person, this person who had been written off, And through the grace of God, he developed into a choice leader who not only impacted Paul, the guy who wanted him tossed aside, but he continues to impact you and I today through God superintending the writing of the Gospel of Mark for you and I today. So as we end today, I want you to think about where you're going to be going when you walk out of the doors of Wayside. As you go home this afternoon, As you go to school on Monday, as you go to your place of business or wherever you're working or you're posting in the military, I want you to think about this baton of faith that you have. And I want you to look ahead and say, who is the person that I'm developing and growing? Who is the person that I'm going to be intentional in handing this baton of faith off to? Will you join me, please, as we go to God in prayer? Lord God, we thank you for your word that tells us how you gave some as apostles and prophets, some as evangelists and pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints so that we could do the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Father, would you help us to be faithful to fulfill your call, to take the things that we've heard and entrust them to faithful men and women who will be able to entrust them and teach others also. We pray these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.